Support for This Is Love comes from BetterHelp Online Therapy. If I had an extra hour each day, I might spend it just being still and reading. No phone anywhere in sight. Figuring out what feels good isn't always easy. Therapy can help you suss out what is most important and make the time for it. And BetterHelp can make that entire process convenient and painless. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist in no time at all. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash ThisIsLove today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ThisIsLove. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit DrinkSmartWater.com. I went to see this movie when I was 11 called Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Um, Had you ever seen it? No. You haven't? Okay. Well, it's a musical, a singing and dancing musical about Jane Powell, who is sort of a, a blonde, cute thing about in her 20s. And she's working as a cook. And this, this uh, backwoodsman comes in to get a wife. And he spots her and he asks her to marry him. And she, she's struck by love, actually. And she says yes. Even though, let me tell you, he hasn't done a thing, really, to charm her. Uh, except they do some singing. Anyway, she marries him. And she goes to the backwoods, and when she gets there, it turns out he has six brothers who are the biggest slobs in the world. And she gets to wake up at six in the morning and make flapjacks and biscuits and whatever for these seven perfectly horrible brothers. And she turns them into princes. She teaches them to sing. She teaches them to dance. She teaches them manners. She says, it is, it's a real messed up story if you're a woman, but it, it, absolutely captured me. All I wanted to do was be brought to the backwoods and make flapjacks for six messy guys, okay? When Seven Brides for Seven Brothers came out in 1954, it was nominated for several Oscars and won Best Scoring of a Musical Picture. 11-year-old Delia Efron absolutely loved it. And I saw this movie 16 times, at least. I once saw it in Madrid when I was in college, and I knew it was in Spanish, but I knew all the words. Delia grew up in Los Angeles. Her parents were screenwriters, and she had three sisters. She says her mother was a very matter-of-fact person and didn't understand her obsession with seven brides for seven brothers at all. You know, I had this mother who was so un unromantic about things like that because at least, you know, what she said to me about my hair was, when I was about eight years old, she said, pick one hairdo and stick to it. <laughs> and she never talked about, about oh, you're going to meet someone wonderful and fall in love. She didn't ever talk about love at all, but she talked so much about career. She was obsessed with a career for us. And this was in the 50s. This was very unusual. So I obviously, you know, on the one hand, here's my mother saying, you know, career, career, career. On the other hand, there's seven brides for seven brothers just, you know, saying in the most unliberated way <laughs> imaginable, <laughs> just go off to the backwoods. 
So I think I have always been drawn to love stories, but who isn't? I mean, what is more important in life than love? You tell me that. I mean, all these movies with all this violence and everything, you know, is that making anyone happy? Are hundreds of people walking around saying, I want to be, you know, I want violence? No, they won't want love. So why, I don't even understand why romantic comedies are, are trivialized and called chick flicks. I mean, what's more important in life than love? I truly don't understand that. Delia Efron has worked on some of the most famous romantic comedies of all time, like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, alongside her sister, Nora Efron. They wrote the screenplay for You've Got Mail together. In the movie, a woman living in New York begins exchanging emails with a man she meets in an online chat room. Her AOL username is ShopGirl, and his is NY152. They get to know each other by writing to each other online. There are a few bumps in the road, and at times the audience might think they can't end up together. But eventually, they do. Decades after writing that screenplay, when she was 72 years old, Delia Efron found herself in the middle of a very similar story. Except it was happening to her in real life. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. After she graduated from high school, Delia moved to New York to attend Barnard College. After that, she became an events planner. She got married when she was 25 years old and moved to Providence, Rhode Island. She says she was unhappy. I think in my 20s, I didn't really understand that, you know, life had a finite quality to it because I was obviously throwing mine away and uh, when I got to about 27 or 8 um, I thought am I going to be something? Am I going to do something? And I knew then I really didn't know I wanted to be a writer my mother all she wanted her daughters to be were writers so when I was up in Providence I was this is, this is really ridiculous I had a crochet business with my friend Lori And I mean, obviously I was not gonna spend my life crocheting things for department stores. So I was in New York one day at a party and I said to an editor at Simon & Schuster, I don't know what he was doing at the party. I don't know what I was doing there, but I said, you know, um, I have an idea for a book. I'd like to write a book about crocheting. And he said, like right there, he said, oh, I'll buy that. Delia and her friend Lori published their book, The Adventurous Crocheter, in 1972. And I started to think when I was doing this, you know, I want to be a writer, and I I really, really want to be a writer. And I said it out loud to my first husband. And he said, I don't want you to be a writer. And I said, why? And he said, suppose you become famous. I don't want you to become famous. And, of course, I knew I had to leave him. (laughs) That seems bad. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone wants to crush your dreams with his big, fat foot, you just better get out. So I knew. 
I knew immediately I had to leave. And I, I, we sold this house we had bought, a small house, but it funded me for two years in New York if I lived very cheaply. And I thought, okay, at the end of two years, I have to be a writer. And so I went, I got this very adorable apartment. I mean, luck started to come my way. And I was, it was about two years in, and I'd sold a couple of pieces, but I knew I had to get into the New York Times. I knew that I could write in women's magazines for the rest of my life, and it wasn't going to launch me in any way. And one night, I was sitting there eating chocolate pudding my way, uh, chocolate pudding I, it was the kind that you cook, so it had a little skin on top, and I made a little hole in the skin, and I was scooping the pudding out from underneath. And I thought, I'm eating like a child. And I immediately knew I had an idea for a piece, and I knew how to write instructions. So I wrote this very deadpan piece about how children eat food. Delia described how children eat things like spinach, spaghetti, and ice cream. For peas, quote, Mash and flatten into thin sheet on plate. Animal crackers. Eat each in this order. Legs, head, body. Sandwich. Leave the crusts. If your mother says you have to eat them, stuff the crusts into your pants pocket or between the cushions of the couch. And I gave it to the New York Times, and they ran it on the back page of the Sunday magazine. And it changed my life. Um... I was offered a book contract. It appeared Sunday. I was offered a book contract on Monday. It wasn't for very much money, but it was mine. And it was a book. And then you could live very cheaply, which you can't anymore. So that was it. I was a writer. And then I began to think, well, I really need to figure out how to do more than write this kind of thing. And so I would set a task for myself every year. This year, I'm going to learn to write an essay. This year, I'm going to learn to write you know, a longer book, uh, a nonfiction book. This year I'm going to try and, you know, eventually I got to the, the novel, which is, I think, the hardest thing in the world. And right in there, then I met Jerry, and we fell madly in love. How did you meet Jerry? Well, my friend brought him over to the house. Um, I was living in a fabulous little townhouse on Madison Avenue and 64th Street, which is a ridiculous place to be. This was the only townhouse for blocks, but and it meant that if, I, if friends were in Manhattan, in the center of Manhattan, and they had nowhere to go, they would come and visit me always. I lived above a hair salon and a hamburger place, so it could, had everything I needed for life. And um, one afternoon, my friend uh, Amy called up and she said, oh, we just got the time wrong on a movie. I'm with my friend Jerry. Can I bring him over? You'd love each other. And um, that turned out to be true. Delia says it was a kind of instantaneous experience. He walked into her apartment and she knew they'd be together. She liked a lot of things about him. She says he was observant and supportive and had a great voice. He was a writer, too, in New York to work on a musical called Ballroom. You know, when you're becoming something, I think it's just incredibly wonderful to have someone else who knows how to do it better. And he taught me so much about writing, and we were interested in the same things. Why people do the things they do, the passions, the betrayals, the friendships, the, you know, what life is about was what we talked about. 
Delia and Jerry got married in 1982. They liked to travel and go to the theater. They took tap dancing lessons together. They lived in Los Angeles for a while, then New York again. When Delia was in her early 60s, her sister Nora Ephron was diagnosed with leukemia. And then Jerry got sick too. He had prostate cancer. So I went through many years where I had both Jerry and Nora sick. We're the two people I was really closest to in this world. And um, that was just a terribly difficult time. Nora Ephron died in 2012. She kept her illness a secret from the public, and people were shocked. She planned her own memorial in a folder marked Exit. And then, three years later... Jerry died. They were married for 33 years. What were the days like for you after his death? Well, you know, I always say, you know, it was like a a city where the street signs are missing, but I was, I must have looked really fractured because everyone started, either ignored me like in conversations, like even at the cheese counter, I wouldn't get called, or um, if they were discussing a leak in the wall, no one would listen to what I said. There was a feeling that I was only half in the world. And, you know, even I went to the restaurant, and this waiter said to me when I ordered dinner, he said, that's a lot of dairy, which I thought was hysterical. But, I mean, who tells a person that they're ordering wrong? I mean, unless they look like an old, sad person. So um, it was like I knocked on the head. I was fractured. And then about six months later, I decided to disconnect Jerry's landline. It was my first real move um, in terms of admitting that he was really gone. And Verizon crashed my Internet. And I couldn't get it back. I mean, it makes no sense. I asked them to shut the landline down, and instead they crashed my internet. So I had thousands of these crazy phone calls with Verizon, you know, obeying their prompts and everything. Um, And and finally, I, I mean, I really almost went crazy. And the only way I could cope with it, as I cope with almost everything in life, was that I wrote a piece about it. It was called Love and Hate on hold with Verizon. And it was about losing Jerry and about my, this experience I was having. And I published it in the New York Times. It, it ran as an op-ed. And I got this huge response to it. Um, I just started hearing from everyone. I mean, it turns out that, you know, of course, it's a rite of passage when your mate or someone you love deeply that is bonded to you dies and you start to do this stuff, you know, you end up in a battle with the phone company. I've never got, I mean, I got so much mail. I couldn't believe it. Everybody detailing their dramas. And um, some of the men wrote things like, you know, if you're ever in Hartford, call me, you know, men that didn't quite want to say they might want to meet you, but, you know, something, I don't know. It was, I, I realized I started thinking about men then because of these few strange emails mixed in with the hundred. But I mean, I didn't go out with anyone, but I started to think about would I ever want to. And 
then in October, three days after the anniversary of Jerry's death, um, I got an email from Peter. Peter was a psychiatrist living in the Bay Area. He told Delia he had gone through a similar experience after his wife died, and he tried to cancel her phone line. The phone company had told him he owed an early termination fee. He said the last place he'd vacationed with his wife was Saracusa in Sicily. One of Delia's recent books was called Saracusa and had been set there. Peter had loved it. Since his wife died, Peter had hiked in and out of the Grand Canyon a few times and said it helped. He also said that he and Delia had met before, a long time ago. He said we had a couple of dates when we were 18 years old. Your sister Nora fixed us up. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Did you know only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy? Crazy thing to hear, right? But it's part of the reason why Nature's Sunshine is here to help you upgrade your wellness with simple daily additions that work to fuel your body with the nutrition it needs and may not be getting. For more than 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been harnessing the healing power that Mother Nature has to offer. Their new power line focuses on providing you with superfood and whole food nutrition to support your metabolic health. From their Power Greens that has over 200 plant-based nutrients and two full servings of veggies for gut health and daily focus, to their Power Beats for better performance and enhanced blood flow that you feel immediately. Not to mention their Power Meal, which contains 25 grams of premium plant-based protein, gut-friendly fiber, and a powerful mushroom blend for immunity. This entire power line will support you in feeling your best by giving your body the nutrition it needs. The power products work synergistically when taken together, but are also great on their own. Plus, the full line is vegetarian, gluten-free, and non-GMO with no added sugar. And when you subscribe and thrive, you'll save each month and enjoy free shipping. Get 30% off the power line for a limited time. Use the code POWER30. Just go to naturesunshine.com. That's naturesunshine.com. When Delia Efron was younger, her sister Nora would sometimes set her up on dates. None of them really worked out. But decades later, she was hearing from one of them. His name was Peter. Delia says she didn't remember him at all. Did you Google him? I did. I Googled him and I could not find a picture. But she says she liked his note. It was friendly. She immediately sent it to her friends. They thought he seemed like a good guy. And one friend replied, I say this one is worth beginning a friendship with. Delia wrote Peter back a few days later, 
She thanked him for writing and wrote, I'm embarrassed to say that I have absolutely no memory of our date, and I hope you don't either. She asked how he knew Nora. She wrote that hiking the Grand Canyon seemed like a good idea, that it was a reminder that we're all passing through, to love it while you're here. Peter wrote back, and soon they were constantly exchanging emails. He said that they'd gone on a date to a Columbia football game, and there had been snow flurries. Another time, they'd gone to see a play. He said that he'd met her sister Nora when he had a summer job at Newsweek in 1962. Nora was working there, too, at the clip desk. Peter said he'd been in love with each and every one of the clip desk girls, and that they unanimously and correctly determined that I was too young for them. Delia asked if Peter had kissed her on one of their dates and added, a yes or no answer will be fine. Peter said no. They talked about processing their grief from losing their spouses. Delia said it felt like being in a box and not being able to escape. Peter said he knew the feeling well. Peter asked if Delia would be open to a phone call. She wrote back and said she wasn't sure. She wrote that they clearly had a connection. Quote, I'm a little gobsmacked and I'm scared, actually plain scared and scared of missing Jerry Moore by talking to you. I don't mean it the way it sounds. I'm sure you know exactly what I mean and will miss your wife more by talking to me. Delia asked if she could think about it overnight. Peter told her to take her time and wrote, I believe our hearts will tell us how to do this. Delia wrote back and told him, Yes. They made a plan to talk on a Tuesday in November. Their first call didn't last very long. Delia says she was anxious. But then there was a second call, and a third and a fourth. Sometimes they would stay up late talking. Well, you probably are too young to remember this, but when I was young, that's what you did. You talked on the phone forever. And uh, nobody does that anymore, really. It's so sad. Uh, and uh, <laughs> we just, you know, we just talked and talked about everything. I mean, this is like romantic comedy material. I did think I'd fallen into my own romantic comedy. I mean, I wrote You've Got Mail, and I wrote, I worked on Sleepless and Michael, and, you know, I mean, that romantic comedies in my blood. And here I was, just like in You've Got Mail, just falling in love over email. The, the strange thing about it was because, okay, I am 72 years old at this moment in life that we're talking about. And I am feeling every single thing I felt when I fell in love in my 30s. You know, I mean, not when I was younger, because when I was young, really younger, I was an idiot. But by the time I was 30, I had a very, I don't know, I had my, I, my sense of self was developed and sane enough that I, when I fell in love with Jerry, was very special. And this was like that. I mean, it was, I was head over heels. I was off the ground most of the time. Um... It was so extraordinary to feel that alive. I, I do think it's, it is the paradox of life. It is equivalent to grief, but the opposite. 
So you're so high. You know, you're really, you know, on a cloud. You really are. That's why they have all those ridiculous metaphors like being on a cloud when you're in love but you are and um and there i was you know feeling it all at 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 a time in my life when i thought this this could not be over it was amazing did did you have these feelings were you, were you feeling madly in love or had you fallen madly in love with peter before you even met him in person oh yeah definitely by the time we met, oh, it was very, very, we were head over heels. And I have to tell you, it was very scary then to meet him because um, because it was up to then, it was a fantasy. Less than a month after Peter's first email, they planned to meet. Peter would fly to New York. And until, you know, he came to the door, I... Uh, and then, and he was in person, I, I really did almost freak out. I mean, I was completely attracted to him. He couldn't have been cuter. He just has this great smile with these unbelievably great smile creases in his cheeks. And I was very attracted to him when I saw him. And that was a fantastic thing. Um, he had a backpack, which completely shocked me. Um I called up my friend Jessie in the morning. I said, I can't, I can't do this. I, he has a backpack. And she said, Delia, every man in Northern California has a backpack. <laughs> um, so that was that on that. They went to dinner. And when they left the restaurant, Peter kissed her. You know, falling in love at this age is not like falling in love when you're younger because death is so close. You can reach out and touch it. And I just started thinking I'm going to lose him, you know, or he's going to lose me. And he'd lost his wife. And I, I just thought I can't do this. But that is, in fact, my that has always been the case with me, which is that I can rush into things and then I need to step back. And then I go, then, you know, then I start again. And so, you know, I said to Peter, I, I he was in for three days. I said, I can't spend three days with you. I, I need it's too much. So he said, fine. I mean, you know, one of the greatest things about Peter, I have to say, is that whenever I would say I'm anxious about this, that, and the other, he never tried to argue me out of the feeling, ever. He would always just say, yeah, okay, sure. And and then he said, well, tomorrow, you know what, I'll go visit my friends in Brooklyn. And he did. And he flew back home. And, you know, so he always gave me space when I needed it. Tell me, when did you first tell Peter that there is a possibility that you could get sick? On the phone, before we ever met. I told him I'd been being tracked for, my sister died of, of AML, uh, which is a fierce leukemia. Her sister, Nora Ephron. And before that, for five or six years, she had myelodysplastic syndrome, which is a disease of the marrow, of your bone marrow. Your bone marrow produces your, all your blood, by the way. Anyway, she had this disease of her marrow, which most often morphs into leukemia, and it did finally with her. And during that time, they checked me. AML can be genetic. After Nora had been diagnosed, Delia saw an oncologist for a bone marrow biopsy. 
And they said, your marrow is not quite normal. It's a little wonky. You may get sick. You may not get sick. So the whole time Jerry was sick and Nora was sick, I was also worrying about whether I also would get sick. And um, I told Peter that, um, you know, one of the things about falling in love when you're older is that you have to disclose, right? So, uh, and I would never not, you know, I mean, my God, I didn't want him to get into something he didn't want to be into. And anyway, Peter didn't, um, he didn't seem to care. And then, you know, when I, the first weekend we spent together, I said to him, if I get sick, I said this as a joke, kind of, because I can spin things inappropriately often. I said, you know, if I get sick, I give you total permission to leave me. And he said, just dead serious, I could never do that. And I was almost taken aback by his absolute firmness of that. Soon Delia visited Peter in California, and they went whale-watching. She met his family, and they met each other's friends. For New Year's, they went to the Grand Canyon together. And in March, Delia went in for her six-month checkup. I've been tested every six months for ten years with nothing going on. I walk in feeling just fine to get my six-month checkup, and it comes up that I have leukemia. Uh, and that was uh, four months after we met. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben. Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney Plus. Four months after meeting Peter, Delia Efron was diagnosed with AML, the same form of leukemia that her sister Nora died from. You don't think very clearly when someone tells you, you walk in for a checkup and you find out you have leukemia. You, you're really, you, I mean, I don't think I, it takes a while for the new person that you are to join up with the old person that you were before you walked into that room. And... I called Peter first, you know, and I mean, he said, I'll come in tonight. 
I mean, that was what she said. You know, he got on a plane that night. And that weekend, my doctor called to confirm that my diagnosis and to say that she thought there was a really great experimental drug that she thought could put me in remission. And she said, uh, you know, she said this thing to me, which was so important, but she said, you are not your sister. And what she meant by that was that my leukemia under a microscope, it had the same name as Nora's, but it, it didn't look the same under a microscope. And Therefore, she believed my outcome could be different. And this was a very powerful thing to say to me because, of course, I felt almost like it was a betrayal of Nora for us not to be alike. At the same time, of course, it was what I had to believe if I could survive. So it was, a, it was very complex emotionally for me in many, many ways getting this disease. And in any event, um, she said, you know, I want you to check into the hospital Tuesday and I have, there's this drug and I think we can put you in remission. And, um, so Peter and I are, you know, having breakfast and we we're making, I was making us French toast and, um, he's sitting at the table and he says, you know, we should get married. And then he kind of hurt himself, you know, and he sort of sat up straighter. I looked over and, um, he sort of stood up and said, will you marry me? And I said, yes. You know, it just seemed like the right thing. But you were going into the hospital. See, there wasn't really right. time. That's correct. On Tuesday, I was entering the hospital, which left Monday. On Monday, Delia and Peter went to City Hall and got a marriage license. Then they went to an antique store Delia liked near her apartment and bought a ring. And the next day, she checked into the hospital. And we said to my wonderful Dr. Robos, we said, you know, we want to get married. And she said, fine. And the chaplain came to visit us. And I invited like, you know, 10 friends to the 14th floor of the hospital to the, di there's a little dining room there. And we got married that Saturday in the hospital. One friend brought two cakes from Delia's favorite bakery. A chocolate cake with white frosting and a yellow cake with pink frosting. The chef from the hospital made them a lemon meringue pie. Delia began treatment, and Peter stayed with her, spending every night on a fold-out bed in her hospital room. She remembers the last thing she saw before falling asleep would be Peter sitting across from her, reading. Were you ever nervous about him seeing you after only knowing you for such a short amount of time as, as the healthy you, now having him see so much of you as the, as the sick version of you? Yeah, you know, you'd think I would have cared about that. But actually, he's, he just loved me so much. I don't think I ever thought I would let him down by not looking well or losing 25 pounds or having no hair even. I don't think I ever thought I could let him down. They would go for walks up and down the halls, arm in arm. Delia says people were charmed by the two of them and often asked how long they'd been married. A week, they'd answer. Did it give you strength 
do you think? Did it give you strength to get through this because you had this new love, this new husband? I, I think I think I was cured by love and medicine. Not, I'm not sure what the order is even, but I'm pretty sure medicine probably comes first. But I, I, I don't think it would work without love. I, I actually don't think either would have worked without the other. Delia's chemotherapy was successful. Her doctors told her she was in remission. She and Peter bought a ping-pong table to celebrate and moved their dining room table into the living room to make room for it. They threw a party to celebrate their marriage. The invitation said there would be cake, champagne, and ping-pong. They went to the opera for the first time and saw the 2018 solar eclipse in Oregon. And then, eight months later, Delia's leukemia came back. This time, her doctors thought her best option was an experimental bone marrow transplant. She was in the hospital for a hundred days, waiting to see if the transplant would work. And, and, you know, it got very dark because I was so sick after all that time there, and, and I started to really get immensely depressed. And I said, you know, I want to, uh, I want to die. Just let me die. I really just wanted to go. I was so frail and I couldn't eat anything. And I, 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 it was so dark there. I mean, dark emotionally. And I kept asking my doctors to, you know, let me go. And they kept saying no. And, and you, I swear I understand why people leave behind children, lovers, husbands, wives. You, you, you can't see anything in the future for yourself. You just want out. And that's how deep it got for me in that hospital. And Peter wouldn't let me go, you know. And by the way, I wasn't apparently sick enough, which I couldn't believe either. Um, and finally... I was on oxygen because my lungs were filling with fluid. And in that case, you can't die. You can drown. And I, I texted Dr. Robos, you know, please let me go. And she came to my hospital room. She's, she's very cheery, Dr. Robos. She's an adorable human being. She said, what's going on? You know, and I said, well, I want to die. Just let me go. Please, please. I cannot take another pill. By the way, you're taking like 30 and 40 pills a day, and this it's horrible. And she said, give me 48 hours, and if I get somewhere, give me another 48. And, you know, it was the most perfect thing anyone could say to me because it was hope, which I did want, hope and an end game in one sentence. She honored both feelings I had. And... They put me on these massive diuretics, and Peter just sat up hour after hour watching my counts, my lung counts on the screen. They're called PO2s. And if they drop below 90, then the fluid is, is winning the battle. And um, after about almost, it was almost about 48 hours, the, the numbers started to hold at a decent level, and the, and the nurse came in and said, let's, let's take her off the oxygen and see if she's okay, and they did. I, I, by the way, I have no memory of any of this. I was no conscious memory at all, and 
I remember waking up though, and I wasn't on oxygen, and I saw Peter across the room, and he looked so darling, so handsome, and I thought, I'm starting to heal. And it, and it was true. From that moment on, I just started to get better. Do you remember that first night when you had finally been released from the hospital, when you and Peter were, were back in the apartment? <laughs> no, I do not, actually. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy. I was in a wheelchair. I couldn't walk. Um, but I must have been awfully happy to be sleeping in my own bed in my beautiful little bedroom. And, and knowing he was there. Oh, my God, yes. Do you think that Jerry would have liked Peter? Oh, I'm sure they would have liked each other. That, that I'm sure. But, you know, one of the hardest things about falling in love a second time, it takes a lot of fierceness to go forward when you've had a, a deep loss. At the same time, I was more interested in life than ever, understanding how finite it was in a, such a real way. So that there, there's paradox there, you're being pulled one direction and pulled another way. And, and um, you know, I don't think a lot about what Jerry and Peter, you know, I mean, they love the same woman, so they have to have something in common, right? And they were nice to her, so there you go. What's your life like now with Peter? What's your life like? Well, okay, Peter is retired now, and he is reading audio, 100 audiobooks a week. He recently went through Proust. And um, we watch endless tennis, because I'm we're both tennis fanatics and the US Open recently was the most marvelous tournament in a long time it was so thrilling and I read and I write oh also eating that's always a big occupation with me we just lead a very easy life we asked Delia what the secret was to a good romantic comedy since she's written so many good ones She said, you need a big obstacle, something that's preventing two people from being together. Like in Sleepless in Seattle, the obstacle was that they don't know each other and live on opposite coasts. She hears him on the radio, so they can't be together because she doesn't even really know who he is. In, In You've Got Mail, that was the first problem we had to solve, Nora and I. Why don't these people want to be together? So then we decided, because there were these big bookstores then, putting the little bookstores out of business, that she would have a little bookstore, a children's bookstore, and he would own, like, Barnes & Noble. So he was putting her out of business. That is why these two people could not be together. And that's a huge thing. So, you know, the stakes, in other words, that's the question. What are the stakes? Delia wrote a memoir about losing Jerry, losing Nora, and meeting Peter. It's called Left on Tenth, A Second Chance at Life. In it, she writes that she thinks a lot about her sister, who, quote, brought me Peter. 
She writes that she's now fully recovered. Her chances of getting leukemia again are the same as anyone else's. Very, very small. This is Love is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Katie Bishop is our supervising producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson, Jackie Sajiko, Libby Foster, and Samantha Brown. Our technical director is Rob Byers. Engineering by Russ Henry. You can learn more about the show on our website, thisislovepodcast.com. If you like the show, tell a friend or leave us a review. It means a lot. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at This Is Love Show. We're also on TikTok at criminal underscore podcast, where we post a lot of behind-the-scenes content of both shows. This Is Love is recorded at North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more great shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Love. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.